people stretching from the plains all the way down into northern Texas. Frostbite can occur in minutes. Wind chills 50 below in some spots. Plus, coast to coast, 78 million people under winter weather advisories, watches, or warnings as a system develops tomorrow morning and in the afternoon, racing into the Appalachian. Second system develops off the coast. Knoxville, Nashville, all looking at some snow into Pennsylvania. Friday, this low pressure moves off quickly, but morning snow, slick travel for the I-95 Carter, Bangor to Boston, we could be looking at six to eight inches of snow, even more going into the Appalachians, and the lake effect may be a big problem too. Three to six inches in uh, Washington, D.C., three to four elsewhere, upwards of a foot near the Great Lakes, and out west, Tom, we are talking about another big storm coming in to the Pacific Northwest. We've got flood watches and warnings from Seattle to Portland tomorrow, and then Friday, rain lingering in the coast with snow moving into the Rockies. We're talking anywhere two to five inches of rain from Seattle and Portland to Missoula, Montana, and heavy snow from Jackson, Wyoming, just to the east of Seattle, Tom. Plus, we're going to be looking at much colder temperatures making their way into the northeast by the weekend with temperatures 10 to 20 degrees below normal. Tom? All right, and Al, we'll have much more tomorrow on the Today Show. Al, we thank you. Turning now to the coronavirus, 29 U.S. states shattering their seven-day average record for new COVID cases as school districts around the country grapple with how to proceed. Some opting for returning to online learning while others are trying to reopen and are being met with a shortage of COVID tests. NBC Stephanie Gosk reports. Late last night, Chicago school doors abruptly slammed shut, upending the lives of hundreds of thousands of Chicago families. We had all winter break to have this planned out, and here we are. Kids are kind of caught in the middle, and parents like myself are really scrambling to get coverage. Concerned about soaring COVID cases and limited testing, Chicago's teachers' union voted to go remote. I have a 90-year-old grandmother with underlying health conditions and issues, and so I would just appreciate being able to work in an environment where at least... The students are all PCR tested weekly. But city officials called the union's decision a work stoppage and canceled school altogether. A clearly frustrated mayor speaking out. We can't forget about how disruptive that remote process is to individual parents who have to work. Late today, word of a plan being worked on to go remote next week and be back in person by the 18th. This first week of school after the holiday has seen a dramatic jump in school disruptions nationwide, more than 4,500. Back in October, there were 28. Still small compared to a year ago, but Omicron is straining school systems to their limits. Rapid tests are hard to find. PCR results are delayed. If you do not have adequate testing, you cannot keep a school open safely unless you accept the risks that potentially as high as half of your students could be positive and not know they are. Most school-age children can get the vaccine, but just over half of 12 to 17-year-olds are fully vaccinated. That drops to less than 16% for 5 to 11-year-olds. Teachers and staff are out sick in record numbers, over 1,000 in Boston, where today the superintendent jumped into action, teaching a fourth-grade class herself. Just excited to be here today to uh, represent all of the incredible all-hands-on-deck approach that we're taking here. Unlike at the start of the pandemic, there is a much more concerted effort to keep children in classrooms. There are some people right now who believe keep the schools open at all costs. Is that really tenable? No, keeping the schools open at all costs means that you are not acknowledging that all costs involve lives. 
A dilemma so many parents and teachers are facing this month. NBC News correspondent Stephanie Goss joins us now. And Steph, I know we have some news from the CDC advisory panel. They're now backing the FDA's recommendation to get kids 12 to 15 years old their booster shots. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Uh, it's the Pfizer booster. And as we know, the FDA signed off on this author emergency authorization a few days ago. Now what they're saying is that children in that age group, as long as they're five months after their final vaccination shot of Pfizer, can now get this booster, which would be a big deal for families that are worried about keeping their kids in school. They also have said that kids 5 to 11 can get a third shot, a third Pfizer shot, if their immune systems are compromised. And that could be really important for families who have children that they're worried about. So important. All right, Steph, we thank you for that. Now, while schools try to figure out how to handle the Omicron surge, many people with the virus now struggling to keep up with the shifting health guidelines. It is so confusing. The CDC under fire for changing their guidance on how long Americans need to isolate after testing positive. NBC News correspondent Von Hilliard spoke to people who have COVID right now about how they're making sense of it all while in isolation. Here's a question. What is the one business that people were interested in using the rapid test. Daily demands like work and school prompting the CDC last week to cut its guidance for how long individuals should isolate after testing positive from 10 days to five days if the person is fever free for 24 hours. Now, after pushback, the agency writing, if an individual has access to a test and wants a test, the best approach is to use an antigen test towards the end of the five-day isolation period. This has nothing to do with the shortage of available tests. The CDC says that if an individual tests positive after five days, you should continue to isolate until day 10. I still don't know if I'm safe to go back into work or if I'm still contagious or not. What is clear is the coronavirus is all around us, more than at any other point. Yet our understanding of just how far one should go to stop the spread is still evolving. In fact, on Tuesday, the CDC posted explicitly the science is evolving on Omicron and is still pointing to data on previous variants. Doesn't that data rightfully leave some Americans skeptical of the five-day guidance from the CDC? Yes, it should leave Americans skeptical because we probably still have anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of people who are still infectious even after those five days, even with no symptoms whatsoever, which is why I think the best basic guidance is that if you get a positive test or you have symptoms, 10 days. Tyler Crow on day seven of isolation, waiting for the CDC's previous marker. I go with what we've had from them for a while, the 10 days. Rafael Alvarez, currently on day three of his isolation, says he will follow the CDC's new timeline. My whole game plan is to um, eventually get tested on the fifth day. Because according to the CDC's guidelines, you can go back to work and school after five days. I'm personally concerned that this is discouraging people from believing what the CDC has to say. I understand the skepticism. The difference to me is critical. The CDC is not putting out policy that has no evidence. The problem is the evidence is shifting. It's all led folks in isolation to go looking for tests in lines like these. New Yorkers Abby and Ray, 15 days after testing positive, deciding to finally go out and look for their tests. Do you agree with the CDC changing it from 10 days to 5 days? Scientifically, I'm not sure why they changed that, but I personally would prefer if people stayed in longer. I'm forced to obviously go into either a urgent care or clinic to get tested by a physician, which is honestly unfortunate because I don't want to be in contact with people out there. 
All right, Vaughn Hillier hearing from real people tonight who are fighting COVID as we report this out. Uh, Vaughn, you know, the CDC director today made an important distinction for folks who are taking those rapid at-home tests on day number five after testing positive. There's another rule they have to follow. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Walensky and other health officials are clear. Just because you may get a negative result from one of those rapid tests doesn't necessarily mean that you are no longer infectious, meaning there may no longer be enough virus in you to trigger a positive rapid test result for yourself. But that doesn't mean that for potentially several days, you may still be carrying enough virus to still infect others. That's why Walensky and the CDC continue to have a 10-day requirement that folks wear masks for those 10 days after first testing positive. Tom? Vaughn Hilliard live for us tonight on Top Story with so much confusion over the latest CDC guidelines. We know you have so many questions. We want to bring in Dr. Nahiba Dahlia to help us clear this up. She's an NBC News medical contributor and the director of the Boston University Center for Emerging Infectious Disease Policy and Research. So, doctor, let's start from the top. When should you get a COVID test if you've already been exposed? And should you get a test if you've already tested positive? So, um... Tom, I'll just echo what you said. I think the confusion has been massive. But the, the big part here is that if you are vaccinated, um, then you you do not have to quarantine. Quarantine and isolation is you know basically the same thing, which is you're separating yourself from others. You do not have to quarantine, but you should get tested within five days. And if you are not vaccinated, you should isolate for the whole period of time. If you're already sick, that's this is when you know this is the the change. One of the changes that they, that they've made because. Previously, what they had said is if you're if you're vaccinated or, or if you're not vaccinated uh, at about five days of isolation, you can go back to normal. Now, what they have introduced is that around five days, you're able to get tested. And if you're positive, um, you, you need to get another test to make sure you can go back. However, um, if you cannot find a test, you want to finish your isolation, separating yourself from others at around five days. And then you want to continue wearing that mask for another five days, just in case you might be one of those folks who might still be transmitting a little bit of virus. So you're not transmitting to others. You know, during the White House COVID briefing today, the head of the CDC and the coronavirus response coordinator said pretty definitively that they're not changing the definition of fully vaccinated to include booster shots, but they're also still encouraging people to get their booster shots. Do you think at some point they're going to have to change that? I think we're headed that way, Tom. I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that that third dose is really offering a lot more protection in terms of protection against um, Infection, uh, particularly against infection, even though those two doses that people got may provide some protection against hospitalizations, very good protection against hospitalizations, severe disease. The Omicron is helping reduce transmission because it's reducing the number of people who are getting infected. So I do see that there is a benefit for that in my community of, of medical experts in infectious diseases. There's also a conversation that that third dose actually allows your immunity to mature in a way that potentially you could have protection over a longer period of time. Dr. Bedelia, for us tonight, doctor, thank you. Next, we want to turn to the investigation into the January 6th insurrection, almost one year since the siege on the Capitol. The committee investigating the attack now urging Fox News host Sean Hannity to cooperate, revealing they have dozens of text messages that suggest the top Trump ally knew about the former president's plans leading up to the riot. Garrett Hake has more. Don't miss an all-new Law & Order Thursday. One of these bombs goes off and our city is torn apart. All these people attacked because of what they look like, not in New York City. Back up really slow. Last night, five inmates escaped. 
FBI is bringing in their own specialist. Detective, you're making a fool out of all of us. Unlike you, I don't hold grudges. An all-new Law & Order Thursday, tonight on NBC. Torreo's homemade, delicious as naturally sweet tomatoes, straight from the motherland. Dinner. Revealing it's in possession of dozens of text messages between Hannity and Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in a letter to Hannity. According to the committee, those texts suggest that Hannity may have had advanced knowledge regarding President Trump's and his legal team's planning for January 6th. Hannity reportedly writing to Meadows on the night of January 5th, quote, I'm very worried about the next 48 hours. And a few days later, reportedly texting Meadows and GOP Congressman Jim Jordan about an apparent call with Trump, writing, he can't mention the election again, ever. I did not have a good call with him today. He knows a great deal that should be shared with the committee, that should be shared with the American people um, about uh, planning before the 6th, about conversations or text messages on the 6th, about things after the 6th of January. Hannity never shared his concerns with viewers on the night of the insurrection, and although he did condemn the violence, he continued to sow doubts about the election. The president was right. Our election, frankly, was a train wreck. Hannity's attorney, Jay Sekulow, responding to the commission's letter in part saying, quote, we remain very concerned about the constitutional implications, especially as it relates to the First Amendment. The committee chairman also saying they want to reach deeper into Trump's inner circle, urging Mike Pence to speak with them. The former vice president, the target of threatening chance that day. So his life was in danger. Uh, I would hope uh, that he would do the right thing and come forward. And with that, Garrett Haig joins us now from the nation's capital. So, Garrett, it's been almost one year since the insurrection. That will happen tomorrow. Where does the investigation stand right now? Because, you know, you get all this new information. It sounds like they're still trying to talk to so many of the key players. Yeah, I mean, look, the committee investigation only got stood up this past summer already. They say they've interviewed more than 300 people, but like a football team behind in the fourth quarter, their biggest problem now is the clock, because so many of these top Trump administration officials have decided they can simply wait out the committee and hope that it'll be disbanded if Republicans can take control of Congress in the next year. Pushing them to testify sooner rather than later, their biggest challenge and one without a good solution. Tom? All right, Garrett Haig for us tonight. Garrett, thank you. But it's not just Congress investigating the Capitol riot. The FBI is still working on identifying people using facial recognition technology and hundreds of thousands of tips that have been coming in in what has become their largest investigation in history. Here's NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams. A year after the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol since the British torched it 200 years ago, the FBI hasn't stopped working to identify rioters. This exclusive look shows agents and analysts still combing through tens of thousands of photos and videos. Investigators also use facial recognition software and cell phone records that allow them to plot the movement of individual people inside the Capitol, the largest use ever of that technique. The attacks happened all over the Capitol grounds. Stephen D'Antuano, the man in charge of the FBI's Washington field office, says a priority now is identifying the rioters who attacked police, like this man using a long probe to administer shocks. It's giving them an electrical jolt? Correct. Yeah. So that must, that must be painful. I would imagine it would be, yes. Yeah. It would be like any taser. Or this video of a man beating a police officer with a long pole. That officer in particular right there just hit him in the head. Or this one showing one of the rioters spraying a chemical at officers. He 
gets rid of it, throws the um, the can in, grabs a riot shield, and starts beating the uh, officers. People have sent in hundreds of thousands of tips reacting to photos and videos like these posted on the FBI website. Tips have even come from rideshare drivers and waiters. We've had uh, restaurant workers um, turn, uh, turn somebody in uh, because they've overheard them talking about, about it. Federal criminal charges have now been filed against more than 700 people, and about one-fourth of them have pleaded guilty. But a big question remains unanswered. Was there actually a plan well in advance to storm the Capitol, or was it a case of seizing the moment? It does matter in terms of a record of history, to get a sense of what this event was all about. Was it a perfect storm of uh, failure of security, of extremists kind of all coalescing around the Capitol, or was this something greater? Members of the far-right Proud Boys and Oath Keepers have been charged with conspiracy, but court documents say they were preparing for violence in the streets. And the FBI has yet to figure out who planted two pipe bombs last January 5th at Republican and Democratic National Headquarters. No breakthrough so far, despite releasing surveillance video showing the suspected bomber that night on Capitol Hill. Why don't you know yet who placed these bombs the night before the riot? They're covered from head to toe. Right? They have a hoodie on, glasses, a mask, gloves. You know, fully, fully clothed. The FBI has even compiled this map showing the bombing suspects' movements that night. What do you see in the video of that person? What are they doing? Um, you know, the, the person's walking down this, uh, this road here. One bomb was placed just outside the Democratic office entrance. Pretty close to that corner? Yeah, pretty close to that area right around there. All right, Pete Williams joins us now from Washington. Pete, I want to start where you just left off. Is there anything more we know about this bombing investigation? Well, just how thorough it is. It's certainly not for lack of trying that they don't know who the bomber is. They've interviewed over 900 people. They know the route the bomber took because they can see from piecing together surveillance video where he is walking through, or I should say he, where the bomber is walking through the neighborhoods. And they've talked to every neighbor, people who were walking their dogs at that time of night, uh, and they haven't come up with who that person was. And one of the difficulties is the person is so heavily uh, camouflaged with uh, clothing they don't even know whether this is a man or a woman. One of the big mysteries that still remains out there. I also want to mention before you get out, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke from the Justice Department today about the federal response to the riot. Right. This was ostensibly a thank you to uh, DOJ employees for the work they've been doing. But he did say the Justice Department is committed to holding anyone accountable at any level who was criminally responsible for the riot, whether they were at the Capitol that day or not, Tom. Pete Williams with a lot of new reporting for us tonight. Pete, we thank you. Overseas now to the growing tensions in Kazakhstan. Demonstrators turning more violent by the day. Protesters storming government buildings and ransacking the airport. All of this over an increase in fuel prices and building frustrations with the country's leaders. Here's NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley. Tonight, Kazakhstan's violent protests spiral even further out of control as thousands take to the streets furious over rising fuel prices and government corruption. Armed protesters storming the city hall in the commercial capital of Almaty, appearing to set parts of the building on fire. Want to hear a short story about the average timeshare vacation?
flashbangs to disperse crowds gathered outside the mayor's office, aiming water cannons at protesters in the city center. President Qasem Jomar Tokayev taking sweeping actions in an attempt to ease tensions, removing the prime minister and his entire cabinet from office and reinstituting price caps on fuel. He even blocked the internet for most of the country. But none of that was enough to quell the unrest. Instead, a fourth straight night of violence. Charred police vehicles lining the streets. More than 200 people detained in the protests. At least 95 police officers injured. Demonstrators first took to the streets over the weekend, angered over rising prices for liquid petroleum gas in this oil-rich nation. They've since morphed into a broader expression of anger at the government, economic inequality, and perceived corruption among the ruling elites. This oil worker calling for the president and his predecessor, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, to step down. Many believe Nazarbayev, a Communist Party leader who ruled the former Soviet state for three decades until 2019, still wields great influence behind the scenes. You've seen similar dynamics play out in other uh, former Soviet countries where, you know, the old generation of leadership that came of age during the Soviet period uh, has lost touch with the younger generation that's more uh, connected, that's more globalized, that's more open to the outside world that has different aspirations. The announcement about the, the rise in fuel prices was just the match that kind of lighted the kindling. In a tweet, Kazakhstan's president blamed destructive persons interested in undermining the stability and unity of our society. But after so many years of autocratic rule, there are almost no opposition politicians capable of rallying nationwide support, leaving an unclear endgame for these leaderless demonstrations. Matt Bradley, NBC News. We thank Matt for that. Next up, the breaking news involving tennis star Novak Djokovic, who just hours ago had his visa application to enter Australia rejected. His chances of playing in the Australian Open now in doubt. He's one of two high-profile athletes who are also vaccine skeptics looking to return to their respective courts. Morgan Chesky has the latest. Tonight, the world's top-ranked men's tennis player caught in the middle of an international COVID incident. Novak Djokovic landed in Melbourne today to play in the Australian Open. But his visa has been rejected, according to the country's border officials. He's now in danger of being deported. His coach posted an Instagram of Djokovic saying... Not the most usual trip down under. According to Reuters, his lawyers are appealing the decision. Australian Open officials had granted the star a COVID-19 medical exemption to compete. Earlier today, Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison sending out a sharp warning that all foreigners entering the country need to be vaccinated unless they qualify for an exemption, including Djokovic. If that evidence is insufficient, then he won't be treated any different to anyone else and he'll be on the next plane home. So uh, there should be no special rules for Novak Djokovic at all, Not, none whatsoever. Djokovic has said in the past he's opposed to getting vaccinated while consistently keeping his own status private. So whether someone wants to get a vaccine or not, that's completely up to them. Reuters reporting that Djokovic sought a type of visa that does not apply to those granted a medical exemption from the COVID vaccines. The 20-time Grand Slam winner's participation has drawn criticism from even fellow players. If it was... Me that wasn't vaccinated, I wouldn't be getting an exemption. Another superstar athlete and vaccine skeptic is getting set to make a return to his sport. Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving is expected to play his first NBA game tonight since refusing the vaccine. 
New York City's indoor vaccine mandate has kept a seven-time All-Star from playing in home games all season long. After initially barring Irving from competing as a part-time player, the Nets have now decided to allow him to compete in road games. Uh, things happen for a reason, and now we're here, and I'm just grateful for this. All right, Morgan joins us now. So, Morgan, I understand you have some new reporting on the entry issue into Australia. Yeah, Tom, that's right. The Australian government has made it clear that that entry visa for Djokovic has been denied, and they have suggested potential deportation. The prime minister is saying that no one is above the law when it comes to entering their borders, not even Djokovic. In the meantime, uh, we have heard that his team could file an injunction that would essentially appeal that decision, but for now... Djokovic was last seen heading to a hotel in Melbourne. A lot of drama heading into that open. And before you go, Morgan, I know that some uh, government officials in Serbia, where Novak's from, are responding pretty heavily to Australia. That's absolutely right. The top elected officials there saying that they are backing the number one tennis star in the world, saying that they'll use whatever power they have at their disposal to try to uh, make sure he is able to play in this Australian Open. Keep in mind that uh, this could be a history-making moment for the star here, Tom. If he wins, he would surpass both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal with 21 Grand Slam victories, making him the all-time leader, a chance in sports history here. That could be totally overshadowed. Yeah, a lot of fans looking forward to this tournament. All right, thanks so much for that, Morgan. Still ahead tonight, you'll remember we have an update tonight on that seven-year-old girl missing for two years. The father of Harmony Montgomery arrested what he told police about her whereabouts. Plus, excessive force? The shocking body camera video showing a police canine attacking a driver after his rental car was wrongfully reported as stolen. An Omicron derailing award show season. The two major events just canceled as the variant spreads. Stay with us. Top story. Just getting. Put your hands ah. out of the window. Chaotic moments after police pull over a driver. Out of the window. Both hands. According to a federal lawsuit, Ali Bader was driving a rental car that was wrongfully reported as stolen. Both hands out of the window. Come out of the car and put your hands in the air. This police body cam video is from December 2020 in California. Both hands in the air! Use your hands right now! Showing a canine attacking the driver and the moments leading up to the dog's release. In the air! Put your hands in the air! Do not reach into the car! Walk back towards the sound of our voice! Ali Bader's arm was in the dog's bite for what appears to be at least 45 seconds. We've paused the video because of its graphic nature. Now he's suing the city of San Ramon, as well as the police chief and the officers involved. Bader needed surgeries and has not regained full use of his arm, according to the suit. He alleges excessive force and a breach of civil rights, according to the lawsuit. There is a place for canine use and and. and public safety, the people who are fleeing the scenes, they can, you know, send them and track them and help locate people. Carmen is a former police chief and NBC News law enforcement analyst. There should be a lot, a high level of um, concern before a dog is deployed to bite. And we all know the history of what, how dogs were used um, during the civil rights era. Bader is also suing the two car companies he rented the vehicle from, Hire Car and Car Mommy, to use as a rideshare. The contract he signed said the company could report the vehicle as stolen if the car wasn't returned, according to the contract provided by the attorney. But Bader's attorney says... We know this. The car was not stolen. It never should have been reported as stolen. Did Bader miss any car payments? We're looking into that, but it looks like he did. He missed a short period of car payments. 
Now, attention is on the San Ramon Police Department as to why the dog was deployed when Botter was making no attempt to flee, according to the suit. What are you calling for? Who needs to be held accountable, in your opinion? Well, I mean, primarily the police department. I mean, primarily the police department, and um, it, it just shouldn't have happened. I mean, uh, it, that's who we think should be primarily held responsible. This case is activists and groups like the Marshall Project call for more police and canine oversight, as police use of canines is not widely tracked in the U.S. There's a huge amount of liability uh, if a canine is set upon a subject um, without a uh, reasonable uh, probable cause to make an arrest and to take that person into custody. How is your client doing? How is Botter doing? Well, thank you for asking that. Um, he is, as you might imagine, still traumatized by it. NBC News has not reviewed the police report, and the San Ramon Police Department has not responded to the lawsuit or NBC News's request for comment. All right, Zinc Clay joins us now live from here in 30 Rock. It's such a disturbing video and, and, and a really strange situation. I understand you also have reaction tonight from the car company. Yeah, that's right, Tom. And it is disturbing. We reached out to Car Mommy and a spokesperson responded with this statement. It reads in part, we extend our sympathy to Mr. Botter at this time for what he endured with his injury and the extent of his recovery process as a result of his interactions with the San Ramon Police Department. Car Mommy last received a payment from Hire Car for Mr. Botter's rental on December 9th, 2020. After extensive efforts to have the car returned or paid current, Car Mommy filed a missing vehicle report with the San Jose Police Department on December 20th, 2020. And it's worth noting, Tom, that day is the same day of the incident. I did speak with his lawyer earlier today, and they say their hope is that this lawsuit will ensure this kind of incident doesn't happen again, Tom. All right. Sinclair Esamwa for us tonight here on Top Story. Sinclair, thank you. When we come back, the disappeared. Tonight, we take you inside Mexico, where mothers are desperately searching for their sons, believed to be victims of cartel violence, some even digging up graves to find answers. And remembering a hero, the country's oldest veteran, dying at 112 years old, what he said kept him going all these years. That's next. Which is better, white bread or brown bread? Time now for Top Stories Newsfeed, and we begin with an update tonight to a story we brought you yesterday. Police have arrested the father of seven-year-old of a seven-year-old missing for two years, Adam Montgomery, facing several charges, including endangering the welfare of a child and refusing to provide information about Harmony's whereabouts. Authorities say they found Adam, who has legal custody of this girl, living in his car. New court documents show he was accused of abusing Harmony before her disappearance in 2019. He claims he has not seen her since dropping her off with her mother that year, there's a $43,000 reward for information. All right, officials have confirmed the cause of last summer's devastating Dixie Fire in Northern California. Cal Fire said the blaze began when a tree hit PG&E power lines in July. The deadly fire, the second largest ever in the state, scorched nearly 1 million acres and destroyed 1,300 buildings. The company has already acknowledged its involvement in the fire and is facing more than $1 billion in liability costs. The Grammys have been postponed due to the Omicron variant tonight. Organizers announcing the show, which had been scheduled for January 31st in L.A., will be rescheduled. No word yet on a new date. And the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, scrapping its in-person plans today, announcing the multi-day event will be fully virtual 
for the first time ever. All right, the oldest living U.S. veteran has died at age 112. The National World War II Museum confirming the death of Lawrence Brooks, who was also the oldest living American man born in 1909 outside of Baton Rouge. He served in a predominantly African-American unit during the Second World War. He is survived by five children, 13 grandchildren, and 32 great-grandchildren. He said his secret to longevity was being very nice to people. All right, we want to turn now to the Americas, where we take a look at stories from across Latin America and the U.S. Tonight, a Mexican mother pleading to a cartel leader to stop the threats and let her continue searching for her children. Her two sons are part of the tens of thousands of victims of forced disappearances in Mexico. Desperate mothers now taking matters into their own hands, searching for clues and often human remains. But some say their efforts are now being met with threats. NBC's Isa Gutierrez has more. A fearless plea from a desperate mother in Mexico. In this video posted to social media, Ceci Flores addressing cartel leaders by name, who she says are keeping her from searching for her missing sons. She clutches the photos of her dear Alejandro Guadalupe and Marco Antonio, who she says disappeared in 2015 and 2019. Her sons, just two of the nearly 100,000 people who are missing in Mexico, many of them falling victims to the country's ongoing violence, often rooted in organized crime. Disappearances are not new in Mexico. There is a history of disappearances that comes from the Dirty War, which was a period between the 60s and the 80s, but it has grown to be at an extreme level that I think nobody, like, nobody expected. More than 95,000 people have disappeared, according to the country's National Search Commission. And most of those disappearances occurred since 2006, when the government began its war against organized crime. Even human rights organizations have been hesitant to recognize these cases as enforced disappearances. But the evidence from Mexico is really overwhelming in that in many, many of the cases, it is clear that in some way or another, state authorities have been involved. In the majority of cases, no one has been held accountable, leaving groups of mothers with no other option but to pick up a shovel and search for their loved ones. Women like Ceci finding solace in search groups popping up across the country. These groups of women often behind grim discoveries, their searches leading to hundreds of clandestine shallow graves and human remains located across the country. In November, the UN Committee of Enforced Disappearances urged Mexican authorities to quickly locate the tens of thousands missing, identify the deceased, and investigate all enforced disappearances. Ceci says it was the authorities' inaction on her son's disappearances that led her to search for them herself. She told Noticias Telemundo she had to flee her home and has been living in hiding for months after being threatened by cartels and following the murder of another member in her group of searching mothers in July. What is the threat to mothers and family members who are searching for their loved ones themselves? I think the crime of disappearance is the 
one of the crimes that creates the worst psychological toll for families. People who are searching for their loved ones don't stop in their entire lives just crumble in the face of their efforts. Now, more than anything, Ceci just wants to get back home to keep searching for her boys. Isa Gutierrez, NBC News. We thank Isa for that report. Now to Top Stories Global Watch, and we begin with the missile launch by North Korea. South Korea's military confirming Pyongyang fired the projectile towards the Sea of Japan. North Korea state media claims it was a hypersonic missile. The U.S. and South Korea are now investigating. It's the first known missile test by the North since October and comes after Kim Jong-un promised to ramp up his nation's military capabilities in the new year. Outrage tonight in France over comments made by the country's president. President Emmanuel Macron saying he was aiming to, quote, piss off millions of unvaccinated citizens by blocking them from restaurants, travel, and other activities. The comments come as the French parliament debates a health pass that requires vaccines to access most social venues and long-distance public transportation. And Rio is canceling carnival events due to a surge in COVID-19 cases. The city's mayor calling off its world-famous street parade and parties for a second year in a row. The public celebrations usually draw millions of revelers from all over the world. The city's official parade, which takes place in an arena, will be held with some health precautions. All right, coming up, the Olympics versus Omicron. The Winter Games in Beijing now less than a month away, but how can China keep its zero COVID policy while welcoming athletes from all over the world the steps the country is taking? Stay with us. All right, we're back now with Omicron and the impact it might have on the Winter Olympics in Beijing, set to begin in less than a month. China has some of the strictest COVID protocols in the world, but despite the fast-spreading Omicron, it still seems dead set on holding the games. Joining us now is Olympic sports writer and author Alan Abramson. Alan, thanks so much for joining us live on Top Story. So, you know, we just got through the Tokyo Games. I was there covering those Olympics. They were able to have an Olympics. Granted, no, no fans in the stands. With the strict lockdowns like the ones we're seeing in China right now, in one city, 13 million under lockdown, how are they going to realistically have COVID-free Olympics with people sort of flying in from all over the world? That was in Tokyo, too. Uh, you know, uh, as, as far as China goes, there's theory and then there's practice, right? The, the theory is that the Chinese are going to implement what they're calling a closed-loop system. Basically, it's our medically sealed system. Once you're in, you're in. No one gets in or out, not even Omicron. Uh, but, you know, life has a very funny way of working out. Uh, we'll see. Viruses are small and slippery things. We will see. You know, with the effectiveness and speeds at which Omicron seems to be spreading right now and China's strict, strict policy, does it seem like they're trying to hold the Olympics no matter what? So that is the easiest question you or anyone else could ask me all day long. Uh, the Olympics are going to happen. Let me say this again. The Olympics are going to happen no matter what. They are an important statement, an important statement for and from China to the world. The Olympics are going to happen. Bank on it. All right. And what, what steps do we know that, that they're taking already to stop the spread? So number one is the closed loop, this hermetically sealed system. Number two is that anyone and everyone who goes to the Olympics, to the Olympic scene has to take two tests within 96 hours of showing up. If you get to go again, you get to take those tests, I get to take those tests. Number three is that all of us have to be tested daily. And I mean daily, we get to spit into a little tube. Number four is that we are all going to be monitored up, down, and sideways, just like we were in Japan. Civil liberties, not a chance, not a chance.
You know, we've seen that the NHL players aren't going to send uh, their players to play on the U.S. hockey team there. Do you think countries could drop out over COVID concerns? No. Uh, so just today, the Swiss team had a meeting with the IOC over this very thing. And the Swiss team said, you know, we have some concerns about COVID. And the IOC said, hey, guess what? We've taken care of those and you will be there. And the Swiss team said, yeah, you're right. We will be there. So uh everyone will be there this is an important statement olympics for the chinese government and it's an important games for the for the ioc to get through too uh everyone will be there you can bank on that too you know uh one of the big things is going to be covering the politics of these olympics what do you think is going to happen if an athlete tries to make some kind of political statement so um generally speaking uh unless you're on the podium uh, an athlete has the right to say whatever he or she wants. That, that is a fact. It, 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 this is a delicate subject, but the fact is that an athlete can say whatever he or she wants. But, but at the same time, a Games takes place under the laws of whatever country the Games are in, right? These Games are in China. So the First Amendment is not a thing in China. So here's the question. Do you really want to run the risk of seeing the inside of a Chinese jail? Knowing that, for instance, the American embassy is not inside the closed loop, that's the balance, that's the question, straight up. Alan, finally, you know, having covered the Tokyo Games, just like you, as you mentioned, um, I'm wondering, you know, once the game started in Tokyo, that the sports action took over and it was a lot of fun and we could focus on the sports and COVID sort of took a backseat. Do you see any of that happening in, in Beijing or do you think Omicron and COVID may supersede the sports? So traditionally, and these are only, quote unquote, only going to be my 12th Olympics, the run up to any Olympics is marked by what I call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, and then once the games start, it's all about the sports. I'd be super shocked if that wasn't the case here. Uh, once, the, once the games start, once the sports start, it's all about, in the case of the Winter Olympics, figure skating, skiing, snowboarding, especially snowboarding for me. Uh, and skiing, and and uh, it's a lot more fun than writing outside. I'll tell you about that. All right, Alan Abramson, uh, we will watch your coverage. We will uh, be looking for your stories. Uh, hopefully, you'll play the guitar for us in a later segment. Uh, thanks so much for joining well, Top Bruce Story Springsteen tonight. Back there, right? there you go. All right, thanks so much. When we come back, a look into the future. Top Story travels to the biggest consumer tech show in the country, getting a sneak peek at all the gizmos and gadgets that could change our everyday lives. Stay with us. another hot year for the housing market with factors like high job growth driving buyers to cities all across the Sun Belt specifically. Zillow economist Nicole Bichot joins us now live. Nicole, thanks so much for joining Top Story. Um, I, I read your report that was out today on your site. It was really sort of interesting. The top five markets you identify, tell our viewers what they are. So our top five markets for 2022 are Tampa, Jacksonville, Raleigh, San Antonio and Charlotte. All of those are within the Sun Belt. That's been the hot region throughout 2021, and that's not changing for 2022. What we are seeing this year versus last year is that these are a lot of secondary and smaller markets compared to some of the superstars of last year, like Austin, Phoenix, and Miami, that have now priced themselves up to a point that they're becoming increasingly more unaffordable. That's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of demand for some of these smaller, more affordable areas. Tampa landed at the top of our list, given its increasingly high level of home price appreciation, nearing 30% for last 
last year. We're expecting that to grow another 25% throughout 2022 as well. And as you mentioned, job growth is a big factor for what's driving people and bringing them to this area. In bigger cities, the housing markets have soared, especially in this area here. But your research has identified some risks, namely what happens with interest rates and the stock market. Can you explain that to our viewers? Yeah, so interest rates and stock markets are things that can impact housing. On the interest rate side, especially in expensive markets, that can really impact the amount yeah. of a monthly payment on a mortgage. And so that's going to change the, the amount of a home somebody can afford. In more expensive markets, that's going to put a lot more pressure on the lower price tier and really drive up competition for these more affordable homes. Um, so we're going to see a lot of the more expensive coastal markets struggling with that throughout next year. On the stock market side, that really is going to play into down payments, particularly for first-time buyers and people who don't have a lot of equity from a previous home sale that's going to be funding their new purchases. So that's something that we're looking forward, uh, looking to as well. Um, the markets that have topped our list, including Raleigh and San Antonio, are markets where we see, you know, pretty, pretty light risk on both of these factors, both when mortgage rates rise and when stock markets um, go through some fluctuations. We see these housing markets continuing with sustained levels of demand that's resistant to a lot of these external changes. All right, Zillow's Nicole Bashow, thanks so much for that. We appreciate it. And finally tonight, CES, the biggest consumer tech show, kicked off today, but like so many things, it looks a little different. This year, NBC News business and tech correspondent Joe Link Kent got a futuristic look inside the event. Bye. The future has landed at CES, and it wants to lend you a hand. From futuristic robots that wait on you to an avatar named Sebastian. When you need me, I'll show up on a nearby screen carrying out tasks in the metaverse. The pandemic ushering in a new generation of personalized tech to help transport us into a virtual world, like a smart contact lens, putting you into augmented reality, a battery-free thermometer that charges with a few shakes, and a smart faucet that warms up with simply a wave of the hand. After years of testing the coolest tech in person, I went to CES this time a little differently. It feels like I'm in Las Vegas at CES in person, but surprise, I'm actually here in Los Angeles, nearly 300 miles away. I'm being beamed into Las Vegas with portal technology. It's 3D holograms that get me there. The idea is to offer more human interaction when a FaceTime or a Zoom just doesn't cut it. What more do we really get out of this? When you beam somewhere, uh, you no longer have to uh, book your flight. You don't have to book your hotel. You don't have to worry about uh, coronavirus. An ideal future that for some is already here. It's also important to point out there were a lot of major companies that were only at CES in spirit. Amazon, Microsoft, and Google all pulling their physical footprint out of Las Vegas, citing the Omicron variant, making this year really unlike any other. Tom? All right, Joe, we thank you. Thanks so much for watching Top Story tonight. I'm Tom Yamas in New York. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Good night.